Welcome to the Faith and Fishing Podcast, where you get to hear all kinds of fishermen tell their stories and share their faith. I'm your host, Cam Steele. Hey, how's it going, y'all? Welcome back to the Faith and Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Cam, and in this episode, we'll be bringing you the podcast's very first guest. If you are a member of the kayak fishing community, odds are he needs no introduction to you. He has traveled the world in the Navy, written a book, hosted TV shows, owns and operates one of the biggest brands in the kayak fishing industry. Basically, if you're into kayak fishing and you've dreamed of doing it, he's done it. The owner, founder, and president of Kayak Bass Fishing, better known as KBF, Mr. Chad Hoover. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So to uh, get us started off, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about you and about KBF. My name is Chad Hoover. I am uh, the founder and president of KBF. Uh, that stands for Kayak Bass Fishing. Uh, we're a uh, tournament series organization, uh, a community, uh, and a resource. So we're not just a tournament um, organization, but we're, we're kind of the you know, the, the, the biggest community in kayak fishing. And we're focusing a lot more on the community stuff instead of just the tournament stuff uh, in 2020 and beyond. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're just kind of um, the, the standard bearer, if you will, for, you know, trying to um, streamline the catch photo release process, uh, work with other organizations and partners around the country to get uh, as close to standardization as we can get. Um for a young sport, you know, I've uh, been doing catch photo release now for over 20 years, but it's still relatively young mainstream wise. It's only been in the last, you know, five to seven years that it really kind of started to get some real traction in the bass world and in, in the online um, space, especially. So still a lot to learn, you know, the uh, boxing in the UFC uh, are still changing their rules and still updating and still modifying things. And they've been around for a hundred years and 25 years, respectively. The NFL changes their rules every year and they've been around for, you know, over a century. And same thing with Major League Baseball and NBA and everything else out there. So it's, it's one of those things you just have to always kind of stay on top of it and evolve for fair competition and uh, to close the cracks on the people that try to exploit opportunities or, or cheat or, you know, even take advantage of, of loopholes. And so, that's kind of what our charter is, is to be that organization. And, uh, we have a really group, really good group of partner organizations around the country that help us do that. And a leadership panel that we use to oversee all of that stuff. And, uh, it just works out great. That's KBF in a nutshell. We started in 2009 as a business running online events, went to our first live events in 2013 and did the first uh, national championship in 2016, rolling into the uh, fifth one. And uh, it um, was going really well, obviously, until this coronavirus thing came along. We've had to postpone a lot of stuff, going a 60-day hiatus for live events. And we're working to reschedule those uh, on a daily basis. We, uh, we went down to Gunnersville today to... Uh, lay out the floor plan and the, and the, and the, and the infrastructure for rescheduling the national championships to, uh, later in the year, October, uh, as of right now, the 7th, 8th, and 9th. And, uh, you know, we're just gonna, we're just like everybody else. We're, we're having to roll with the punches and kind of 
take this whole thing as it comes because nobody really knows what's going on. Yeah, for sure. All right. So um, uh, just to get some backstory here, uh, how'd you get into fishing? Oh, man. Well, I'm from Louisiana, so I grew up where water was pretty much out my front door. Um, and sometimes like literally out my front door. <laughs> um, I think Louisiana is an old Indian word for water everywhere. Uh, you know, like any other person, I started out fishing for small panfish and things along those lines. And my grandpa lived on the bayou and, uh, the other grandpa was a foreman at a catfish farm. And then my, the grandpa that lived on the bayou ultimately became a foreman at a catfish farm. So they both had other careers before I was born. Um, one of them was in the oil field and the other one worked for uh, a tire company. But from my earliest memories, both of my grandpas were actually in the fish business. They raised catfish, uh, commercial catfishing ponds. And, uh, and so I got to actually get the regular, um, approach to fishing, you know, going out and catching panfish and things along those lines. And then I got the, uh, I got the, uh, the shooting fish in a barrel version of it when I was a kid. So I never was a kid that had to, kind of get forced into loving fishing without it being exciting because I actually was uh, blessed with the opportunity to go catch fish on demand early on. Like uh, these fish are fed a pellet style feed through this thing that blows it out on the water. And uh, so my grandpa, even when I was like, I don't know, four or five years old would set me up with a fishing rod and a, bobber with a raisin on it and these fish would eat these things because it looked like the pellet feed it it was it was pandemonium man so you know young kid being able to do that was awesome and then um i had an uncle um he's actually a a cousin but he was so much older than me we called him an uncle growing up Uh, owned a little convenience store really small in our tiny little town in jonesville louisiana and he had you know one little section of the wall that had fishing lures on it and uh, he had a, I think it was a H and H spinnerbait, a hula popper, and a Heaton uh, spook. Um, and I remember watching ABC's Wild World of Sports when I was probably, I don't know, six or seven, maybe eight. And um, uh, Larry Nixon caught a about a six or seven pounder uh, on Toledo Bend on a topwater lure, working it through these uh, flooded timber. And I remember two things. For one, I said, man, that's way more exciting than the way I've been fishing. Two, it was relatively close to my house because, you know, we were about an hour and 45 minutes to two and a half hours to to lead a bend, depending on which part you went to. And three, it still looked like everything around my house. Uh, we had Catahoula Lake and, you know, Lake St. John and, uh, you know, all of these lakes around me and bayous where it looked a lot like what Toledo Bend looked like. So... I don't know. I'd watched everything on TV prior to that seemed so distant and so far. And so like not real, you know what I mean? It seems surreal. When I saw that, I thought that looks like Horseshoe Lake. That looks like, you know, that looks like the bayou behind my papa's house. Like I can do that. And so I went to my uncle that owned the store and I said, what do, what do I got to do to, what can I do to get those lures? And, and I uh, worked out a deal with them where I'd cut the grass at the shop. It probably was literally like a month, but it seemed like two years to me at that age, you know, <laughs> um, 
pushing a push more. And, uh, I think he gave them to me like one lure at a time. Like I had to work off the spinner bait. Then I had to work off the hula popper. Then I had to work off the H and H's. Uh, I mean the, uh, the heat and spook. And then I worked a deal out with my grandpa on a fishing rod and coaxed him into taking me to, uh, Toledo Bend. And, um, I think I caught my first bass on a topwater lure when I was maybe eight, and I've been hooked since. Um, never really got into the live bait fishing that much other than for, like, panfish and catfish and things like that just because I was so enamored with, you know, giving the lure the action that you wanted it, throwing it where you wanted it to, being able to see it. And honestly, I probably got – I probably topwater fish when I shouldn't for, you know – five years until I was old enough to even know any better. I didn't want to fish a worm. That was boring, right? That was right. slow out there in your way. I didn't really even want to fish like the hula popper because you had to sit there and pop it and stop it, pop it and stop it. And it was kind of, I was for one ADD, you know, not that anybody can tell that now, but I'm like <laughs> going 90 to nothing all the time. And back then it was probably even worse. Um, so, you know, cast, Twitch reel, twitch reel, twitch reel, twitch reel, repeat, cast. Like, to me, that kind of thing is the perfect thing for somebody with ADD. Like, I tell people all the time, you want to cure ADD, give them a fishing rod. Because it's, you know, it's 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 information overload. You're constantly doing something, and, and it's repetitive motion. It's all that kind of thing. And so you don't really have to... um You don't really have to think as much while you're doing it, even though you're constantly thinking it's a weird thing. And, uh, yeah, I just fell in love with it. And, um, so the mix of having all of these backwaters to explore, always being able to safety up and go to the catfish ponds. If I just had to catch fish or, you know, if my memo said, Hey, go catch a couple, you know, specific size, go catch me a couple catfish this size. Then I could go do that. And then, um, you know, catching brim. And then we, my parents moved to Savannah, Georgia when I was 10. Um, and there's these, uh, fish there called shellcracker, which is basically a red breast brim. I got hooked on those for a while because we live right by where you could catch them. Um, had done some red fishing, uh, red fish in South Louisiana growing up, but not that often because I live, you know, two or three hours off the coast. Um, four hours depending on which direction you're going. Um, but I, I got exposed to saltwater fishing. In, uh, on Tybee Island, Georgia, for the first time, which was fantastic. It was, uh, it was one of those things where I caught, I think I caught my first redfish on a piece of dead shrimp off of a pier, and it fought pound for pound more probably than anything I'd ever fought at the time. And, um, I then started wade fishing these back creeks and, and, uh, backwood sloughs and pockets there. And, uh, you know, the thing about it was I loved hunting growing up. I loved fishing. The The great thing about fishing for me was you didn't have to have land. Fishing was pretty much everywhere. And, you know, growing up, uh, kind of the poor white kid from the trailer park, I did a bit of hunting. You know, a lot of it was uh, um, skirting the line of whether or not I actually had permission to be hunting where I was supposed to, where I was hunting, you know? And, uh, but fishing was always kind of the deal. It was always there. Um, it, it's also one of those things where there, there wasn't a fishing season. You know, growing up in the South, we don't have a fishing season per se. You can 
always fish. So I, that was always attractive to me. And then when I joined the military and I got away from home where I was traveling, you know, for a living and I was moving around to the point where it was hard to find somewhere to hunt and have access to land, things along those lines, fishing was just always there. And then, uh, it got cultivated by being stationed in two really world-class fisheries. I was in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, which is, you know, a saltwater fishing Mecca, uh, and then Corpus Christi, Texas, which is another saltwater fishing Mecca. And I bounced back and forth between them twice in my career, stationed in Florida quite a bit, went out to California and got to catch a halibut in the surf, uh, you know, got to catch a, a, a big um, California bass. Uh, now, granted, I don't really count it because the guy that I went with um, took me out and we took a, a bullet, or like a, almost like a Carolina rig, a fish finder rig. Um, you know, it's an egg sinker with a swivel with about a two foot leader on it. And we hooked a live crawfish on it and threw it out in, you know, 15, 20 foot of water off of this one point before the fish went into spawn. And I mean, we bailed 10 pounders like it was stupid. <laughs> um, I didn't really count that because it was kind of, it was kind of cheating. Um, and we gut hooked one of the fish and, and that kind of really bugged me for probably three years. It kind of bugged me that there was this, you know, nine and a half to 10 and a half pound fish that, we threw this crawfish out there and he saw the line moving. He's like, all right, let it run, let it run for a second. And then, you know, looking back on it, I wasn't really smart enough to know this back then. Uh, or maybe I wasn't, I just didn't think about it. But, um, that fish was swallowing that lure or that crawfish and swimming away with it. Then you were back and set the hook and that hooks, you know, all the way down in its gut. So it's not good for the fish. Um, nothing against the people that do it. It's legal. It is what it is. It just wasn't one of those things that kind of always took something off of it for me not catching it on on an artificial lure. And uh and then from there, man, it just kind of has always been there. It's it's evolved and you know, I, I did some tournaments and did really well in them early on in my twenties and got invited by a guy that ran up you know, back before social media there was these things called forums and um bulletin boards and I got invited by a guy ran, that ran the biggest one in Corpus Christi to go to a seminar. And he paid me. I was like, hold on a second. I can make money doing this? And then people started asking me if I do guided trips. And when you're a broke E5 with, in the military and people say, hey, do you do guided trips and you're really good at fishing? Eventually, you don't say no. You say maybe. And then after you say maybe a few times, you say yes. And after you say yes and you've committed yourself to it, you figure it out. So I did that for a few years and you learn as much about fishing as a guide as you're teaching, to be honest with you. It's one of those things where you're kind of learning. And I was in my twenties, so you're learning as you go as well. Um, and, but that was a fantastic experience. Um, I got to do that. I got, uh, had a sinus problem while I was going through flight school, which put me on medical hold for almost a year in Corpus Christi, Texas, and one of the, you know, one of the world-class fisheries on the Gulf coast. And so I stood watch as one of my jobs. And, but when I wasn't on watch, I was on the water. So it was almost a one year fish fest for me. I think I fished 350 days that year. Um, Man. and it was just one of those things where, and I tell people all the time when you can fish that much in a year, uh, the learning is, is exponential. Um, it, it's just like going to the gym. When you go to the gym every day, 
you see that incremental progress because you're getting the muscle memory, the compound movements, the, the crawl, you know, you're getting that consistency. If you went to the gym once a week, you probably wouldn't get that greater results. And so I'm not saying if you can only go fishing once a week, don't go. But I see people all the time go fishing once a week and then they compare their success to pros or influencers or people who get to go fishing more often. Um, so it's an unrealistic expectation. You like, you wouldn't go to the gym once a week and compare yourself to a bodybuilder. So why would you right. go fishing once a week and compare yourself to a pro, you know? So for sure. But that's kind of where I'm at, man. I've, uh, uh, I went from liking fishing, enjoying fishing to, to being enamored with fishing, to being dedicated to fishing, to being obsessed with it. So I think, um, you know, people ask me all the time, how would you explain your relationship with fishing? I was telling them it's, you know, obsession. That's about the best way I can explain it. Um, Absolutely. My grandpa told me one time, if you can figure out a way to do for a living what you think about doing while you're at work, you'll never work another day in your life. He wasn't an entrepreneur, so he didn't understand the whole, you never go to work when you're an entrepreneur, but you also never get off. (laughs) Right. uh, There's that flip side of it, but it's been good, man. It's obviously going to be a tough thing with this whole, uh, you know, coronavirus thing when you make a living doing marketing and events and you can't have events anymore. You can't really yeah, market. Sure. So we'll, we'll see how this whole thing plays out. But um, we're poised for it with, with catch photo release being virtual. And uh, yeah, we'll just kind of, we'll see where it goes, <laughs> you know. For sure. All right, man. So, uh, this is the, the first episode with a guest. And, um, the reason, uh, I reached out to you. One of the reasons I wanted you as the, the first guest that we had, um, is really because it was you that gave me the idea for this podcast. I was listening to, I want to say it was the Bass Fish and Dads podcast whenever you were up there. And, oh, yeah. um, um, at the time you said that your goal for the next year, I think, was to, uh, really live for God more. And, um, and I had heard other, um, other fishermen, uh, briefly mention their faith on other podcasts. And I, I thought that would be a really cool podcast to have. And then I can't remember who it was. I want to say it may have been actually, um, Gene Jensen on another podcast saying that if there's content that you want to see or hear that, um, you can't find it's on you to make it. Um, so here I am. And so, um, and so why don't you go ahead in a nutshell, uh, tell us what it is uh, that you believe in. You know, basically, um, the, the Cliff's Notes version of it is I'm a Christian, you know, I'm a, a follower of Jesus, right? I, uh, I believe in, um, the teachings. I'm a, it, you know, if you had to put a denomination to it, I'm most closely associated with Southern Baptist. Um, uh, I have taken on the mentality of going, uh, the route of you can't go to, you can't go out, you can't go to the gym once a week. Basically the analogy that I just used, you can't go to the gym once a week and expect to become a bodybuilder where you also can't go to church just once a week or practice your faith one, your faith once a week and expect to be stronger, uh, believer, stronger representative representative or stronger Christian. I guess for years, I probably 
rationalized or hid behind a whole, uh, I'm a personality, I'm a public figure, I don't want to offend anybody. Um, um, I'm a, uh, uh, don't want to be polarizing. I kind of got my hand slapped on one of the networks that I was on early on by making a, uh, a statement that was quote unquote too Christian. And so therefore I kind of safety it up. And then you now I finally realized, like I, I made this analogy a lot. You know, some people go to church and think about fishing. I go fishing and think about God and get closer to God. And, and that really was a true statement, but at the same time, it was also a cop out. Um, and also as traveling as much as I do. And when you make your living on primarily weekend based activities, um, which is what fishing is localized to for most people. Uh, it's difficult to always just give up Sunday um, because otherwise you're you're cutting down your opportunity to do things to one day a week. And when you do what I do for a living, it's difficult. And so I found a home at, at Life Church. Um, the the pastor there is Craig Rochelle. He's got a leadership podcast. He does a lot of stuff, and and I think that. What Life Church does is it creates a connection to people uh, across the country and really across the globe as a church body that isn't necessarily you have to be at church with the same people at the same time every week. And so now what I do is if I don't have the opportunity to physically go to church, I go to church online. And if we miss church, we sit, we gather as a family in the living room and we watch the, the, the service back on YouTube. And, um, my wife and I both listened to, uh, the, the pastor of Life Church, Craig Rochelle. We listened to his podcast. Um, we also, um, rewatch, uh, series and episodes that he does on YouTube. Uh, there's playlists on there just like there is on any other video. And so ironically enough, Focusing on YouTube kind of led me to a relationship with a body, uh, a church body, the body of Christ that allow, allows me to interact and share on a more regular basis. And it's, it's kind of gotten me more emboldened to share it, you know, publicly. And I think that the more confident you are in your own walk, the more likely you are to share it. And so, um, by and large, I don't want to be the guy that's, you know, like a UFC fighter that's thinking Jesus in the ring after he just won a fight and then he's backstage on Instagram, you know, with strippers. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, whether that's hypocritical or not, it's hypocritical to the people who are looking to you as a role model for that to motivate you to want to live that life. And if you're not living it and you're just giving it lip service, then you're you're not just not motivating people to do it. You're demotivating people to do it. And you're giving the naysayers the opportunity to criticize it as being a true walk. And so to me, I'm, you know, I'm still a year, maybe 18 months out of realizing that I had some major issues to fix after my time in the military. Um, you know, I joined at 16, uh, in the delayed entry program was active duty at 17 and then retired at 37. So I literally was in the military over half my life when I retired. 
And, uh, you know, like I said, I joined at 17 and I spent 20 years in the military. So when I retired from the military, I was in the military three years longer than I had been alive before I joined and was in it my entire adult life. Um, I did combat search and rescue, which also is, you know, search and recovery. Um, I did a lot of stuff that was around a lot of death, you know, both on the humanitarian side and on the combat side. Um, and then when you do search and rescue, you do a lot of, you know, recovery. And so just took a long time for that stuff to kind of work its way out of the box. And once it started coming out of the box, it was out. Uh, I tell people all the time, it's like, um, it's like you're, uh, it looks like I was turning the handle on that jacket in the box thing. And then finally one day when it popped out and there, it wasn't you no know, pushing the head back in. And it was just something that I had to deal with. And it was, it was probably the roughest six to 10 months of my life, to be honest with you. Um, it was overwhelming. It was frustrating. Um, it was hard doing it on your own. That's when you realize you had to just kind of, you know, Jesus take the wheel a bit and back off. Luckily for me, I had a very strong second uh, in my wife, Christy. Uh, she's got a strong faith. She's got a strong support nature about her. And it also made it very clear to me and, and made it easy to see how so many guys succumb to it. Right. There, there was this time that you're trained in the military, especially as a combat guy, as an operator and doing the things that I did, even though I was combat SAR and I wasn't necessarily a shooter. That's what I, that's what we, that's who we trained with is nothing but shooters. And so when you run on the field with shooters, you act like one. Right. And so, I mean, we still were quote unquote shooters when we did insertions and extractions and things like that, but we weren't considered a combat role. Right. We were considered combat support. But, you know, if I didn't have everything that I had going for me and then I didn't have a beautiful, amazing, super strong wife who kept dragging me to church, kept forcing me to fill my head up with positive stuff, constantly sending me links to the podcast. Hey, did you listen to Craig Gray Show's podcast? Yeah. Oh yeah, which part did you like about it? What was the better part? What was your favorite? You know, like, crap, now you're quizzing me on it? So that holding me accountable thing was huge. And then, you know, I kind of reached back out and found some guys that, that had helped me or I had helped them that were those accountability brothers and kind of reestablished and strengthened some of those relationships. In some of these leadership podcasts, I started hearing things like, you know, you're most like the four people you hang out with the most you are you are judged or you are going to be like the people that you hang out with you know so my inner circle changed got smaller and got a heck of a lot more selective um the things that i was listening to the things that i was thinking about and the things that i was talking about also changed and so now granted (laughs) you know if you know anything about being a Christian, it does not some kind of wave a magic wand uh, and everything is fixed. In, in a lot of cases, it's actually ignorance is bliss. You don't know the attacks that Satan's making on you. You don't know the flaws in your character until you start trying to fix them, you know? Um, 
And so it's not easy uh, immediately, and it's not ever a cakewalk. In, in fact, a lot of times I think you, you put yourself in the crosshairs, both psychologically, socially, and, you know, in a lot of cases, even financially, because certain people and certain companies are, are moving away from our relationships with outwardly vocal Christians. And so it's a different, it's a different, um, it's a different approach for one. I never have been the one to be on social media, you know, dropping F-bombs and acting stupid and doing things, but I've made off color jokes and I've said, you know, said things that if two little 10 year old kids were standing there in front of me, I wouldn't have said, well, then realistically, if you go look at your demographics and 3% of your demographic is 13 and under, and you've got 80,000 subscribers, that's like 1300 kids, you know? Yeah. So it's really forced me to take a hard look at everything, right? Not just, um, one small thing about my faith, about my walk, about my being willing to talk about it publicly to sharing it one-on-one to sharing it in group settings to everything that I do. Right. So, um, it's been a process. Uh, I think that come a relatively long way in a short period of time, but that's also been based on the fact that, uh, I had a really strong foundation in the church and in Christianity growing up. Um, one set of grandparents had me in church as much as they could. You know, the other one didn't really, but the one side really did. Um, and uh, it wasn't hard to go back to something that was familiar. In other words, I didn't have to discover it all new, like a lot of people do uh, right. at, at, at my age. Um I'm not going to say it's like riding a bike because even the the infrastructure of the way we praise, the way we worship, and the way we share now, you know, is completely different. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. I, I still want to get better about it, talking about it, sharing it, and professing it, and testifying in social media, on my YouTube channel, things along these lines. Um, <laughs> You know, God put certain things in your path, and ironically enough, I was at a boat ramp in Virginia. The the, the odds of I changed the lake I was going to go to at the last minute. This guy changed the lake that he was going to go to at the last minute. Got him Adam uh, that runs a YouTube channel called Full Armor Bassin. The dude like eats, sleeps, and breathes it, walks it, puts scriptures in his YouTube videos. Um, Full Armor is the testimonial in the name. Everything about what he does is uh, is representative of it. And I think that God put that guy in my path for me to have that example, you know, uh, and that sounding board. And that guy is constantly texting me, dude, love your last video, man. Check out my new one. You know, and we comment back and forth on each other's videos. And, you know, like I said, you, you kind of are who you hang out with. Um, you're kind of defined by the company you keep. And so... It's just been a good 18 months, and it's getting even better. Um, if this coronavirus thing had hit 15, 16, 17 months ago when I was at the, the peak of my depression, the peak of my, you know, question my self-worth and 
all the things that were going on with the the delayed it's not delayed onset of PTSD, it was delayed recognition of it, you know. Um I've been in a world of hurt. I'm just gonna be honest with you. But uh I think now this allows me to be the guy to be a beacon of light while some other people may be going in that direction. And that's what my number one goal is, is to create, keep creating content, keep trying to stay relevant, keep giving people humorous, entertaining and informative things to think about, you know, and, uh, and try to be a positive, um, influence. Absolutely. And there's, uh, that's why they say his timing is perfect. Um, he's, he's good at that. He knows what he's doing for sure. So, uh, pretty much touched on it um but what does it mean to you to have faith well i tell people all the time i look at faith like a battery in a in a car the battery is always there it makes a lot of the ancillary things not work uh, work or not work it makes the car start when you need it you know you you've got the best machine in the world that is relegated to the effectiveness of this one thing that's always there when you need it and you never have to think about it. But as soon as it doesn't work or it isn't there, you know it and nothing else works. So the best analogy that I've ever been able to come up with to explain faith is, um, you know, it's a lot like the sun coming up in the morning. Hey, is the sun going to come up tomorrow? Yeah. How do you know? Cause you've seen it before. Cool. Well, I've seen his works before. So my faith is strengthened by the daily occurrences. And so to me, faith is like that battery. It's that thing that's always there. It's super dependable. It makes everything else work. And the minute that it isn't there and it doesn't work, neither does anything else. So that's about the best, um, the best way to explain it for me. You know, is to make it something that makes sense to everybody. You know, because it's hard to tell people who can't see something, touch something, feel something. You know. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, it's like oxygen. Can you see oxygen? No. How do you know it's there? Because somebody told you. Because a scientist told you. You still have to have a little bit of faith to believe what he says. Well, I know that God's there and present in my life because I see it. I feel it. It's everything else work. And it's just like breathing. It's about as dependable a thing as there is in the world. And everything that is dependable is also dependable because of him. So it's uh yeah, it's that it's that electromotive force. <laughs> You know, that makes everything else move, that makes everything else work, that makes everything else spin, that makes everything else align. You know, and I tell people all the time, you know, and this is where I got in some trouble with, um, with NBC Sports one time. I, uh, I paddled out into the middle of this flat. It was a very still morning, like very still. And I saw a bullfrog jump off of a log that was probably a three pound bullfrog. I saw a turtle fall off of a limb. This is 15 minutes after daylight. And, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a heron flew away, you know, squawking like they always do. And then the sun just barely was creeping up over the top of this hill. And it was lighting up the fog 
making this purpley orange pinkish colored sky and I just looked over at my cameraman and I said just take a look at that look at all the things that have to happen to make this water here to make these fish here to sustain the whole balance that keeps us all going how you can sit in this and I did my hands out like I was making a circle of motion with both hands I was like how you can be in this and not believe in a God is beyond me so for the people that don't believe just come out here into a place that'll make a believer out of you and so that's kind of what I said and uh, they legitimately made me edit the show and take it out and it was uh it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that's a that's a good segue. The next question, uh, you may have just answered it. Are there any specific times that you can think of out on the water that have affected your faith in any way? Yeah, there's a few. Um, paddling back from the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel with a guy named Kyat Kevin. A lot of people know him. He's a... Um, pretty well known on the east coast he does a lot of long distance paddles and things like that we were out at the, the first island and the storm blew in and um I we stayed longer than we should have and I mean the swells got huge and, and I just remember paddling back and looking at the shoreline well I could see the shore then I couldn't see it then I could see the shore then I couldn't see it and I just remember thinking man I don't know if we're going to make it. Like, when I say there were swells, it was swells so big that Kevin would disappear into a pocket in front of me and then pop back up, and the shoreline would disappear and pop back up. And there was a 24-mile bridge called the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel that was to my right about 50 yards, and I couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. So I just remember looking at the shoreline, and I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I just got this calm over me that said just take that water tower and that building and paddle to it you just keep your nose pointed at that and paddle you'll be good so I was yelling at Kevin and there was another guy with us you know paddle on the downside slip on the top paddle on the downside slip on the top and that was just what we kept saying and paddle down the wave and then when the thing came up to the top just slip don't don't try to force it because you'll dig your nose in and get flipped and so we were uh, we were just grinding, put our heads down and grinded and made it out. And, uh, you know, that was one time. This other time was the time that I was telling you about where I just kind of was overwhelmed with kind of the emotion of the space that I was in and the place that I was in and the time that I was in. And, you know, by any other account, those times I would have been throwing a frog trying to eke out every possible moment of fishing and in this instance I was just more interested excuse, I was just more interested in taking it in and just being there um, you know and then there's been a couple of instances where things got crazy and uh, and um, went to hell in a handbasket and uh, I, I won't say that I questioned my faith but uh I question whether or not I had been faithful enough. <laughs> Does that make sense? 
Yeah, um, for sure. And so, you know, I've been doing this now for 20, 23 years. So I've put myself in a few situations that have been not the greatest or smartest um, that have that have forced a faith check, you know. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's probably the best way. All right. Uh, what fishing story or memory means the most to you? Well, it's kind of ironic that you asked me this and about an hour ago, I posted a picture of my son on Instagram, um, on my personal page. And I said, I don't know who was more excited in that post. And, uh, he'd been having a rough day and I was setting up for the end of the day. I'd found these fish on my depth finder. I knew they were in this little ditch, but the feeding time was off. And it was going to be one of those deals where there was a minor feeding time right at um, the last hour before dark. Um, he paddled over to me and had been fishing all day. It broke off four or five times. It only caught one fish. And uh, we were shooting a TV show, which means I really needed to catch some fish. He was, I think, 13. So I just stopped and I said, dude, I need you to do me a favor. He said, what's that? I said, see that little tree sticking up right there? See that little cut? I need you to paddle around. I need you to come in from the backside and wedge your kayak in between those two trees. And you see that little opening right there? He said, yeah. I said, take that big worm right there. And I handed him my rod. Take this big worm and go over and throw it in that guy. He said, all right. I said, wait about 15 minutes. So I want you to do this when it's right, but it's your bottom fishing, but I want you to work. I want you to snap your rod tip, get that one off the bottom and let it fall. Snap it up and let it fall. Not a normal way you fish a worm. There's just something about it just came over me. And I just said, I, I, I kind of knew the fish were there. I expected them to bite. I didn't want them to worry about hanging up with a moving lure, like a crankbait or a spinnerbait or something like that. So I was like, just throw this thing out there, hit that ditch and work it along the bottom. This is on a day when he had caught one fish. I spent all day trying to find fish to hem them up to get ready for this payoff pitch at the end. And I conceded it and said, go fish right there, buddy. And I backed off and I told my camera guy, I said, he's either going to catch this fish and we're going to have one of the best endings we'll ever have or or I'm going to waste the last hour when I'm going to catch anything. <laughs> he said, why don't you go fish the other side? And both of y'all said, yeah, I mean, that's safety enough. I'm just going to. I'm going to put it on him. So he paddled over and he made a long cast and I backed off about 50 yards and 75 yards. So I didn't bug him and went back to fishing, but in a place where I really didn't expect to catch anything. Paid attention to him for the first 10 minutes. And after that, I kind of was like, ah, I'm just going to do my thing. And I started talking about a tip or something for the, to fill the content for the show. And I heard a big woohoo and looked over and he was getting pulled, you know, 30 or 40 yards and I paddled over and he's getting hung, hung around here. We're in some flooded timber. He's getting hung around every tree limb. This bass is doing everything to pull a <laughs> knife on him to get off. And I said, grab your net, grab your net. And he's got this yak attack landing net that we had honestly just really perfected uh, with this company called leverage landing net. And ultimately yak attack ended up acquiring leverage landing net. But uh, he reached down, he grabbed the leverage landing net. He pulled the rod towards him, lifted his rod tip with his other hand, like a pro scooped the fish up and then he legitimately fell back in the seat dropped his shoulders tears started rolling down his face he reached in and grabbed the fish by the jaw pulled it out and 
mean, we had, we literally had to let him gain his composure, wipe his face off. You know how a kid looks when they're crying. Wipe his right. face off, let him blow his nose before we could even film the ending because he was just so emotional about it. And so to this day, that's his personal best. And it's still one of the most memorable bass catches for me ever because, uh, for one, I knew it was the right thing to do, but I just conceded these fish to tell him to go where to fish and catch it. And he, and you know, it wasn't like easy. It wasn't like shooting fish in a barrel. He had to make the cast. He had to make the, the retreat. He obviously had to set the hook. He had to fight the fish. He had to land it. And it was in a, in a really thick flooded timber area. And I just think that it was one of those deals where, you know, God just blessed us with that moment, that opportunity, uh, blessed me with the knowledge to be able to say, the right thing to do right now is to let him catch it back off. And it's still to this day, one of the best endings that we've ever done for a show. Um, That's awesome. I got to paddle up next to him, grab a hold of his kayak, you know, give him a fist pound and a high five and a hug. And he was so emotional. It wasn't even funny. Smiling from ear to ear. He went from the like snot crying over being, you know, frustrated to then tears of joy crying over catching this fish to like, smiling so hard it made his face hurt um all in about a 20 minute period <laughs> so uh that has to be you know still one of my most memorable moments on the water ever yeah uh, it's gonna sure. be tough to to beat that because not only is his personal best but it was his first time breaking the eight pound mark it was uh you know even if he goes on to catch a bigger fish with me later on that was still kind of our first breakthrough moment um and and it's all on video, which makes it also special. I can go back and relive it every now and then by going on the YouTube channel, find an old episode, and um, just a just a cool deal, man. So that that's probably the most memorable, to be honest with you. It's like be very hard pressed to beat that. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. All right, so we're going to pause the interview right there. Uh, Part one of this interview made for a little bit longer episode, but be sure to tune in to part two on the next episode. But don't worry, it's already out. I want to thank Chad Hoover for coming on the podcast and sharing his story with us. If you want to find out more about Chad and about KBF, head on over to kayakbassfishing.com, and you can even go ahead and become a member today. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Faith and Fishing Podcast. If you like this episode, please give it a rating, a review, and make sure to subscribe on whatever app you're listening to so you never miss an episode. You can follow the podcast on social media at facebook.com slash faithandvisionpodcast and Instagram at faithandvisionpod. Special thanks and a big shout out to Jonathan Infilancy for helping me write, play, and record the music for this show and to Tyler Worrell, the graphic designer behind our amazing logo. If you have any questions about faith, I encourage you to contact a pastor in your community. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, get out there and get some fish, and I will catch you on the next episode.